Father in heaven. Uh, just thinking of all the stuff we're doing as a church, it's, it's a blessing to know that you give us uh, ministry to do. And we aren't called to just sort of live out our days in front of the television or recreating or being completely self-indulgent. But Father, you give us focus to love people, to help people, uh, to be a community of people that shares, ministers, gives. So thanks for that. Bless that, please. But now as we come to your word, I pray that you fuel us for that. To be people of Christ, to live from him thus then, for him. May this word dig deep within us, plant roots and grow fruit, that we may show that we belong to Christ. This, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Turn, please, to Colossians in chapter 2. I want to read beginning with verse 16, then I want to read through chapter 3, verse 4. So Colossians chapter 2, verse 16, please. Hear the word of God. Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why? As if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but there is no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now I want to... I began this passage last week. I began in chapter 8 of... In verse 8 of chapter 2, but I want to just keep sort of moving our way through this. It's an amazing piece of scripture. I want today to allow sort of to guide our thoughts. This last expression, the end of verse 23 in chapter 2, Paul says, But they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. That is, there are no these things which... These false teachers in Colossae have been speaking to them are of no help at all in living a life of real holiness, of stopping the indulgence of the flesh. It's Paul's intent throughout this letter, as we know, that they continue to live holy lives, to walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. 
I have to smile because I, I've been trying to put that expression in every sermon in Colossians. So you hear it every day, every Sunday for probably whatever this takes us, months. And, and, and because I want you to think about it every day. I want, I, want, I, want, I want to think about it every day. I want to think about the fact that my life is to live worthy of Christ, fully pleasing to Him. I hope you think about that every day. In fact, make it a point this week not to think about it. And then before you go to bed at night, ask yourself, did I think about that? <laughs> um, to walk, we're to walk fully pleasing to Him, worthy of Him. Uh, that's Paul's, <clears throat> Paul's heart, Paul's desire as he writes. Remember, his calling is to present everyone mature in Christ. The enemy of that maturity is this indulgence of the flesh. And so he's very interested in, in, in not indulging the flesh and not satisfying the flesh and thus living holy lives. Because when Paul speaks of the flesh, he's not speaking about our skin or even our bodies particularly. That's not his point. His point when he speaks of the flesh is, is, is that which is part of our, that which is true of our sinful nature. This nature that we've inherited because our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned. This, this sin that is in us from, from conception, really. Part of what wasn't, for some reason, in our prayer of confession this morning from Psalm 51, from David's prayer, is, 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 this, is this expression. Uh, he, he speaks of... Of his, own, of his own life. Verse 5 of Psalm 51. It says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now that isn't a reference to, his, to the sin of his parents in conceiving him. It's not a sexual sin of some kind on their part. Thus he was conceived in sin. The point being that even then, sin was in him. Sin is part of our very natures as children of Adam at that point and fallen human beings and thus this sinful nature this inclination to go against God this enslavement really to not seek God as God really is and even when we're seeking God if we're seeking apart from him even when we're seeking God it really isn't seeking God this inclination, this bent, this enslavement really to sin this sinful nature it, it, it's pervasive it, 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 it affects us completely because it's of the heart when we speak of the heart we speak of the essence of our being that the very part of us from which our choices are made decisions are made conclusions are drawn it, it includes our understanding of life and our understanding of life is is affected by by sin rather than understanding life the way that god does we, we invent our own ways to understand life rather than understanding life in a way that brings glory to god we understand life that brings glory to ourselves in some way and instead of instead of understanding life that that points to god that seeks him we understand life that points to us and seeks that which we think might be good, might be well for ourselves and our souls. This understanding of life that isn't the understanding of life that comes from God. And it also, this sin, affects what we might call our affections. The things that we love, the things that we hate. We find ourselves at times loving that which we shouldn't love. Right? And not hating those things that we should. Because it pervades our 
affections. It pervades what makes us happy and what makes us sad. There are things that make us happy that shouldn't. There are things that make us, that should make us sad, but don't. Because sin pervades all of this, you see, because we're, we're, not, we're not thinking of these things filled with God. And so the result of the heart then are decisions, choices that are sinful, that go against God himself. Jesus would say, out of the heart comes these evil things. That's what Paul has in mind here. How do we, how do we stop indulging that? That's his point. Because it's the enemy of holiness, of doing those things which are worthy of Christ, of living fully pleasing to him. So it's very important to him. And a group of people seem to be in Colossae teaching that, which isn't helping that at all. In fact, it's feeding, we'll see, the indulgence of the flesh. This flesh, this sinful nature, it, it causes us, you see, to be sinful rather than loving to put our own interests ahead of the others. We know that. It causes us to lie rather than tell the truth when we see it in our best interest to put a spin on something that makes us look good in the eyes of others, keeps us from getting into trouble. And all this happens so naturally to us. We find ourselves in it. Sometimes even before we know it, it just is a part of us. We find ourselves taking from others that which is rightfully theirs, and we rationalize our ways of doing so. We find our, ourselves being unfaithful in relationships. If it satisfies some urge within us. We find ourselves getting angry when hurt rather than forgiving. We find ourselves envying what others have instead of being happy for them that they have it. That they've been so blessed. We find ourselves hoarding rather than sharing. We find ourselves slandering when other people get more attention than we, gossiping when speaking ill of another will make us look good, we find ourselves bitter towards those whose lives seem better than ours, killing when we're trapped and others get in our way. We find ourselves boastful when we've done something noteworthy so we can be glorified. We find children disobeying parents, parents manipulating children. We find ourselves shameless with perversity. As the prophet Jeremiah says, they've forgotten how to blush. It's blatant in our culture. Of course, we find we try to do this in such a way that makes ourselves still look good um, so that other people don't think we're bad. But yet, simply defending our turf, simply being assertive, simply going and getting that which we really, really deserve. We realize this thing, the flesh, this sinful nature. We're born with it. We're not born, our children are not born neutral. We weren't born neutral. We weren't born innocent. When Jesus said, in order to enter into the kingdom of heaven, you must come like a child. He didn't mean that children were innocent. Thus, we need to enter the kingdom of God in innocence, he meant that we need to come like children dependent, children humble, children in need, children who know they can't and they have to look to another. Come that way, he said. Nothing to do with innocence. We're not born 
neutral. All of us who've had children know that. We can see it develop. I remember my dear son, who is now a man with his own depraved child, he, once when he was about nine months old, eight or nine months old, he was crawling on the floor, I remember, and, and uh, Karen and I were rich enough to own a stereo, but not rich enough to own a stand for the stereo. So it was, it was on the floor of our apartment uh, that we weren't rich enough to have carpeting on. But anyway, he was kind of growing along. And um, we told him he wasn't allowed to touch the stereo. So every time he did, and please forgive me for those of you who are anti-spanking, this is, we just would sort of spank his hand. Uh, when he would touch the stereo, and after a while he learned he wasn't to do that. And so one day I was crawling around on the floor with him, and so he took my finger. And he touched the stereo. That's the flesh, ladies and gentlemen. All right? It's just in us. That's the way that is. It's in us. We know. We know how to do that. And to be holy, we have to stop the indulgence of the flesh. So it troubled Paul deeply when a group of people were coming. And just with all kinds of rules and regulations, saying, if you do this, you'll be spiritual. If you do this, you'll be closer to God. If you do these things, you'll be holy. Note just quickly the kinds of things that they were uh, involved in. Uh, verse 16, he said, Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of these things to come. The substance belongs to Christ. Uh, it could well be that these ones who were coming were, were moving back into the old covenant and saying, here's, here's the things. If you do these things, he's already mentioned circumcisions before then. But if you do these things, if you follow the food laws of the Old Testament by roads, if you, if you obey all of the festivals and feasts of the Old Testament, uh, whether they be the, the yearly feast of Passover, the feast of booths, tabernacles, the feast of, of um, Pentecost, uh, uh, or whether the, the monthly kinds of Sabbaths, the new moons, or whether the weekly seventh-day Sabbath, if you follow them intently, these are the kinds of things thus that will keep you from indulging the f- flesh. These will give you a full life. These will lead to maturity. And, and, and Paul said, no, 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 you're not getting, A, the point of them, because they're simply the shadow of things to come. And even in the Old Covenant, even a, a rigorous, religious uh, keeping of all of those didn't mean you were holy. They, they should reflect the heart. And that's the point of it. It isn't simply the doing of them that makes one holy. Because you see, holiness isn't simply this end result of what we do. It's a matter of the heart. He says, neither is just the shadow of the things to come. Christ has come, so, so don't go to those things. In fact, the food laws were never meant to make you holy. Jesus would say that which, which goes into the mouth doesn't produce holiness. It's what comes out that reflects the heart. In fact, Jesus, Mark declares in Mark chapter 7, at that point declared all foods clean. Now, you might remember in the Old Testament, there were a whole list of foods that ancient Israelites were not supposed to eat. But again, by not eating them, simply by not eating them, that was not an act of holiness per se. But by knowing what they pointed to, what they pointed to was the coming of Christ. They pointed to the coming of Christ, these food laws, in the sense that God had made a promise that through this group of people, the Messiah would come. And so he gave to them disciplines that would keep them separate from all the nations of the world. The food laws of the Old Testament were not 
there for nutritional purposes. If they were, then Jesus means that all of his followers should die of what they eat. Because he said, you no longer need to follow these. Remember, even Peter had a vision and all the foods that he wasn't supposed to eat came before him. And he says, oh, now you can eat them. What do you mean? Well, because the nation doesn't have to be together as it once did. It doesn't have to be separate as it once did. These were things to keep the nation of Israel separate. They weren't for nutritional purposes. I remember we had a friend once who... um, was very concerned about her own nutrition. So anytime we served chicken with skin on it, she would take it off and give it to her husband. (laughs) And so Jesus wasn't doing that when he abrogated the food laws, you see. It wasn't about nutrition. Now, you may read in the Old Testament and say, well, you know, I shouldn't eat this, shouldn't be that, because I think that has more nutritional value than the others. That's yours to do. But, but, But don't follow the Old Testament food laws thinking that they're there for you to be more healthy than everyone else. It point to Christ. Paul saying, Christ has come. Get the point of them and seek not after certain foods and not others, but, but seek after Christ. The same with the festivals. Passover has, has come and it, it came because, because it, it pointed to Christ, the Lamb of God, this substitute for you. Christ has come. Seek Him now. Don't enforce the celebration of Passover, the Feast of Tabernacles. It was given to the people so that they would understand that God delivers. They would understand that they're sojourners in the earth and all of that, all that to point to Christ. He's come. Now, you don't need to celebrate that anymore. Don't impose that on anyone else. The Feast of Pentecost, by the time of Jesus, was this festival that that spoke of the law coming and the nation being formed together as a nation. That all to point to Christ. Now he's come. The nation is here. It's the group of followers of Christ, a holy nation. So you don't need to celebrate Pentecost in that same way. The new moons, the Sabbath, even the seventh day Sabbath was a time of rest to commemorate God's creation and his rule over it. And that this was his people. But but now that's moved from this seventh day to another day, to the first day of the week, even as the first apostles worshipped on that day. The first day of the week. You don't need that force, that seventh day Sabbath now. Because it's been fulfilled in Christ. He is our rest. We rest in him. And we celebrate that now on the first day. Even as that's the Lord's day. That's his day of resurrection. So Paul says don't go back to that. Don't think that by doing these you're going to become more holy. They really won't help you. And then he also speaks later of asceticism and the worship of angels and going on in detail about visions and this asceticism, this this sort of self-denial. Now, Paul's all for self-denial. We'll catch that in the weeks to come. He's all for self-denial when we're denying ourselves sin and following after Christ. But simply to deny things for the sake of self-denial, to deny certain foods, to deny certain pleasures that aren't sinful, if you will, uh, there's no value in that. That's simply our idea. That simply gives the appearance of holiness when it isn't. The worship of angels, an odd kind of thing when you think about it. Though there is a preoccupation always, even in our day, with angels. Somehow people are into them from time to time. But I think Paul would say, why should it give you comfort to think about angels when you could think about Christ? Why does it give you comfort to think that you have a guardian angel when Christ intercedes for you? When angels simply do his bidding, think of him, seek him, 
don't worry about these angels and, and visions. Again, the apostle, uh, the, the prophet Joel spoke about the, the time of the coming of the Spirit and young men will see visions and old men will dream dreams. I rather like being an old man. You don't have to stay up for these things. Um, you just dream them. You don't have to, right? No, no, no need losing sleep over a vision. Uh, and so there's this sense of, yes, vision's all right, but Paul's point being, these things puff you up, that, that you think, well, I, in order to be in our group, you have to have this special vision to see what I've seen, the way that I've seen it, or see something that sets you apart from everyone else. And you can't just be an ordinary Christian who, who just believes in Jesus, for goodness sakes. You need, you need to have a vision. If once you have a vision, then, then you can write that down, it gets in the newsletter, and you're really in. But uh, till then, no. Paul says, no, that, that doesn't, those visions aren't necessary. They don't lead you up. They just simply, they simply puff you up. So don't go back to that. Don't trust these things which only have the appearance of spirituality, this, the, the appearance of holiness. I talked last Sunday a bit, and we'll talk again next Sunday a bit, about legalism, about this, this sense of seeing that I'm accepted by God because I obey. This sense that I obey, therefore he accepts me. And the, the trouble with legalism is that it looks really good. People stay married. Legalists stay married. Legalists read the Bible. Legalists pray. No one can tell you exactly when. And they've never missed it for 37 years at 8 o'clock every Monday. Right? Legalists pray. Legalists show up to church every Sunday, rain, snow, sleet, or hail. Right? They come every Sunday. Legalists look really good. Sometimes people speak about our country in the 50s as being more Christian than today. Not necessarily. More legalistic, maybe. Who knows about more Christian, that is, the heart. Because you see, holiness isn't simply about behavior modification. B.F. Skinner is not our patron saint, right? Just so you know, we don't have patron saints, so don't email me about that. That's just an expression for following people. Okay, you got that? So, so don't, don't, don't ask me for a list of the ones that we really have. Um, but it isn't simply about behavior modification. That's not the deal. We can modify people's behavior. We've learned how to do that in certain measures. Businesses know how to modify people's behavior. If you want them to do X, they pay them more or fire them. There's all kinds of incentives built in, reinforcements, positive and negative. Societies know how to influence our behavior. Um, we increase fines, we do something less. There's a tax incentive that gives us a tax benefit for something, we do it more. We, we know how to live in the midst of these kinds of incentives. Our behavior can be modified, but it doesn't change the heart. And that's what Paul, Jesus, is after. A change of, of heart, really. And it isn't that rules are bad. They're just not the place to start. The, the call to worship I read from uh, Psalm 19 speaks of the wonder of, of God's law. In fact, I read out of the, uh, the um, English Standard Version, and one of the things that's startling to me 
is that the English Standard Version often for the word law uses the word rule. Uh, It's a fine translation. Uh, Other translations have picked up on that over the years and centuries, but, but it's just startling usually like the NIV, and uh, it translates that particular Hebrew word as rule. But in Psalm 119, which is a, uh, a psalm that just speaks of the glory and the wonder of God's law. Let me just read uh, verse 13, for instance. The psalmist writes, With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. Well, the laws of your mouth, but the rules of your mouth. Rules are good. He says, I declare them. Then in verse 20, he says, My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Can you imagine? He says, I long for the rules of God, the commandments of God, the laws, the precept of God, precepts of God. Then in verse 30, he says, I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. If I want to be faithful, I must set God's rules before me. Um, And then... In verse 52, he puts it like this. When I think of your rules from old, O Lord, I take comfort. There's comfort in knowing the laws, the rules of God. Um, In verse 63, I'm a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts, your laws, your rules. Verse 75, he puts it like this. He says, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous, and that in faithfulness you've afflicted me. Uh, And then in verse 102, the psalmist writes... I do not turn from your rules, for you have taught me. Verse 108, I have sworn an oath and confirmed to keep your righteous rules. Verse 110, the wicked have laid a snare for me, but I don't stray from your precepts. I could go on, there's another half a dozen. But, But this sense of finding comfort, finding joy, knowing this is the life of faithfulness, the life of holiness, to know and to follow after God's rules. Rules aren't bad, the rules of God. But we simply don't say, okay, here's the list. Now I'm going to do that. That is unbelief. Just looking at the list saying, I can do that. That's legalism. That's skipping the important step of, with God's help, I can follow Him. You see, what Paul wants us to do, and, and I'll go into more detail in the weeks to come, just kind of scr- just want to scratch a surface to a bit of introduction. What Paul wants us to see is that we obey, we become increasingly holy as we know, understand, and appropriate the gospel. I mean, that, that's really what he's about in this whole letter. It's about the gospel. In fact, he begins in verse, very early on, in verse uh, 5, he, he writes to them and he says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you. And now he's going to lay that out. And he, and he lays out gospel expressions throughout this entire letter. For instance, in this expression of, of his prayer in verse 9 of chapter 1, to be filled with the knowledge of, of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. He speaks of the gospel like this, verse 12. He says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. That's gospel language. That's a, that's a gospel expression. What qualified you to share 
in the inheritance that comes from God for all, that comes to all of his people. It hasn't been your holiness, but it's been Christ's holiness. That's gospel. Not because of what you've done, but because of what he did. You enter, you're, you're qualified for this because of the work of Christ. And then verse 13, he says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Again, gospel language. That, that, that there's something has happened. That God has taken us out of the kingdom of darkness. He's done that. We didn't do that ourselves. He's done that through Christ. And he's brought us into this kingdom of light, uh, this kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom... There's redemption and the forgiveness of sins because of Christ, not because of what we've done, but because of what he's done. And it's something that is, in fact, done. Then we notice in verse 21, he says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil things, he's now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Something's happened. He's, you've been reconciled. Because of Christ. Then in chapter 2, verse 6, we read this Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted. We've been rooted in Christ. We've received Him. Something has happened, taken place, and now we're being built up in Him and established in the faith. Then verse 11 in chapter 2 In Him, that is in Jesus, in Christ. Also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, that which pointed to inclusion or exclusion from the, from the, the body of the people of God. It says you've been circumcised, that thing that, that marks you out. It's been done by God. Christ was cut off for you so that you could be included in. That's happened. You're in by way of his being cut off. By way of his death. And then he more explicitly says in verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism. In which you were also raised with him. Through faith. In the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses. And the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him. Having forgiven all our trespasses. So he's saying you're in Christ. You're in him. Thus, when he died, you died. Sins paid for. When he rose, you rose. Newness of life. All has happened. Think of that. And then, he says, all of this happened. And, and what the effect was, verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, he set aside nailing to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Meaning, when he died on the cross, your sins were canceled, your debt forgiven. It's forgotten. And Satan's been disarmed. He's taken his weapon away, the weapon of the law in your sin. His weapon of saying, if God ever got a hold of you, he would condemn you. He's taken that away. Why? Because it isn't true. Because in our sin, if God got a hold of us, he would condemn us. But it's already happened. In Christ, it's done. It's gone. Now we're free and forgiven. So the weapon of Satan is gone. He can't accuse us any longer. And then chapter 3. Verse 1, gospel expression. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, that is. Seek those things that are true because of Christ. 
sink deep within them. You have died. Your sin is done. You have been raised with him that you may live in newness of life. Live there. That is true. How did that happen? Was it because you deserved it? No. Was it because you were worthy? No. It was because of his wonderful grace and love. Receive that. Know that. Live there. Seek that. Don't worry if you had orange juice or not for breakfast. Don't worry if you had bacon or sausage. Don't worry about those things. I mean, worry about them. (laughs) Nutritionally, don't worry about them in the context of holiness. Unless you ate like 83 pieces, then you've got some issues. But don't think by just saying, well, I'm not going to eat that today, that that's going to make me more holy. Don't worry about that. Think about this. Think about what Christ has done. Occupy your mind with that. Because you see, that's what leads to holiness. That's of value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. He says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things on the earth. And that doesn't mean material things. That doesn't mean that things of the earth are bad things necessarily. It doesn't mean stop thinking about your job or stop thinking about about that red light or green light or any of those kinds of things. Well, officer, sorry, I was thinking about the things in heaven, the things on earth. I didn't see that car ahead of me. It's just not important. That's not it at all. Saying, seek after those things which are true of Christ, not after those things that are unhelpful in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Not after those sort of rules that are just simply rules to be rules. Seek after the things which are true of Christ. He says, listen, because you've died and now your life is hidden with Christ in God. Don't ever forget that. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. What does that mean? It means you're safe. It means you're safe. It means that Satan can't get you there. It means your sin can't get you there. Because you're hidden with Christ, the righteous one. With Christ, the one who's died for you. In Christ, with Christ, the one who's risen. With Christ, the one who intercedes. With Christ, the one who rules and reigns. That's where your life is, and it's hidden there. It's, it's in there where, where none of where Satan and none of those accusations can really get to you. That's where you are. It's hidden with Christ in God. So when God sees Christ, you are there. And when Christ, God sees you, you're in his beloved Son. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. See, that's the final linchpin to this whole thing. Never think about the second coming of Christ. You think of what that would be like. I, mean, I, I think about it in all kinds of ways. Some which are silly and some which are scary. But, but I think about it in all kinds of, all kinds of ways. How, how It's kind of surreal. We talk about it all the time, but... We've not seen anything like that ever. I mean, how can we even imagine the coming of Jesus to the earth and it stops everything and everybody knows it and everybody in the whole world, the whole realm thing, it comes one place, but yet everybody's all together and all dead people from all of history, boom, they're there too. I mean, think about that. 
And then as we read through Revelation, we think about that coming. The images and the pictures can be quite scary. And we know that he comes and there's judgment. And so the big question is, am I safe from that judgment? And this sentence says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. And you'll be judged with him and cast out of his presence, but you'll be with him in glory forever. Done deal, hidden with him, safe, secure. That's the gospel, you see. And not because of your own righteousness, but because of Him, His. Not because of your holiness, but because of Him. It's because you've died, you've been raised, you're in Him. All of that gospel stuff together. So Paul says, think about that. Don't think about all these other things. Think about that. Concentrate your attention there. Now he's going to get very specific in, in, in the next little bit of this that I didn't read today, but he's going to get very specific about that on how to deal with sin. And, he, and he's not pleasant in his language. He says, kill it. So, so don't, don't, don't just think this is a glide here. But we begin by thinking right thoughts. We begin by seeking those things that are true because of Christ who is in heaven. And knowing that gospel helps us then face the indulgence of the flesh. Because it's real still in our lives. Forgiven yet still real in our lives. But you see, when we know it, when we know the gospel, we can deal with our sin. Two reasons why. Very quickly. Number one is because we don't need to be afraid to admit it. See, when we come in the context of the gospel about our sin, we don't need to be afraid to admit it. Our sin is terrifying really to us, isn't it? Disappointing to us, isn't isn't it? If you're like me, you don't really like to think about it. And you like even less to be reminded of it. Right? Because you just don't like that about yourself. And then if you think that if you admitted it, you would be condemned for it, how difficult is that? But we come before God in the gospel with our mindset on that which is true because of Christ we say, when I bring this up, God isn't going to say, out of my presence. He's not going to say, go to hell. He's not going to say, you're going to have three bad days in a row because of this. He's going to say, you're forgiven. I'll remember that no more. It's astounding to us. If it weren't for the Holy Spirit, we wouldn't have a category in our brain for that. Right? But we we know that's true. Yet, we still struggle at that point. The gospel is a value in dealing with the indulgence of the flesh, dealing with our sin, because we can face it. You can't deal with it until you face it. We can really face it because of the gospel. But we can't start with a list of rules and regulations. That just sends us down. Start. We can't start with, you better not do this, you better not do this, you better not do this. That just start with seeking the things that are above. That which is true because of Christ. And enables us to deal with our sin. Parents, you know this. This is the art of being a parent. 
You know that you have to create an environment in your home where on the one hand your kids know what's right and wrong and on the other hand they're free to come to you and tell you when they've disobeyed. I, that's, that's hard to do. God's way better at it than we are. And our kids know that, I hope. But it's a joy. You know this, at least for me, as a parent, it was a joy. When my kids would come to me and tell me their sin, tell me how they disobeyed before I found out about it. They learned after a while it was better to do it that way. Uh, but, uh, but there was a they'd never get it that it was a joy. But it was a joy because I said, they trust me. They know that I love them. They know that I'll forgive them. They know that I'll help them. Because you see, that's the second point in dealing with our sin. The way the gospel helps us deal with our sin, not only does it enable us to face it, but it energizes, it strengthens us, it gives us confidence to deal with it. Why? Because we know that God is for us. Because when he's forgiven us, he's for us. He sent Christ to deal with it at that level. We know he's for us. We know a day will come when the sin will be gone from us entirely in glory. We know that's coming. We know that's part of the deal. But we know now we live this through this time of what we call sanctification. This process of becoming more holy with dealing with these indulgences of the flesh. And so we know that God is for us in the midst of this. And then when we think about the gospel and think about how God is for us and what he's done, it fills our heart with what the Bible calls a compulsion. Notice 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 14. The apostle writes this. He says, For the love of Christ controls us. Or other versions, the love of Christ compels us. And that isn't our love for Christ, though, that comes round in this. That's his love for us. When we know we've been so deeply loved, it does something in us. When you know you've been so deeply loved, it does something in us. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. That's his love. This is love, not that we love God, the Bible tells us, but that he loved us and gave his son as an, as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. We think about that. That's the gospel. And so he says, that love, when we get it, Controls us, compels us, because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You see, this when we receive the love of Christ, it fills us with gratitude, with a love for him that compels us to follow after him. Thomas Chalmers, old dead guy, once preached a sermon entitled The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. You wonder why I never title my sermons. I've been intimidated by those who have gone before me. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Now, when men and women meet and marry, you know, the best way one of the best ways to know that you should marry this other person is when you find yourself so attracted to them, so compelled by them, that you don't seek any others. You know you're in a bad way when you're with the one you're going to marry and you're telling yourselves, 
No, I can't love her, I can't love her, I can't love her, I can't love her. That's a bad thing. All right? You know, you should marry this one when, when, when your, this new affection expels all the others. Right? Then you have to work at that the rest of your life. Um, I don't, of course. She's not here. But anyway. Um, most men do. But uh, um, when we know the gospel, it's to produce in us a new affection. Because God has loved us, it, it produces a new affection in us for him that is to expel all the others. And that's Paul's point here. It isn't about all the rules and keeping them. Not that God's against rules. His rules are great and a comfort and a strength and a help to us. He says, don't begin there. Begin with a new affection. Consider what Christ has done. That's a value in dealing with your sin. That's a value for me in dealing with my sin. Because I know first, oh yes, look at what Christ has done. I can go to him. My sins are forgiven. He won't cast me out. My life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ appears in glory, I'll appear with him. It'll be like a big marquee now appearing Christ and, and Bill, right? We'll be together. I needn't worry. I can go to him. He'll know. He'll understand it. And because of what he's done, I know he'll help me because he's for me. Because Christ is for me, therefore, who can be against me? And it produces in me a new affection. So Paul would say, you want something of value? Think of Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray for me and for us. That you would enable us to set our minds, our very hearts upon Christ. That we would think of him and all that he's done. In thinking of him, putting our gaze upon him. We pray that would work in us to transform us.